We're going to pick up this week where we left off last week. We're, uh, we're talking about the prodigal son, and the reason that we're talking about the prodigal son is that it occurred to me after some conversations I had with our last short message series that a lot of people aren't sure whether or not they're saved. A lot of people aren't sure what it really means to be a Christian. A lot of people don't necessarily even know that they can confidently say that they're going to heaven. And so it occurred to me we needed to, to back up a little bit and, and cover some of the basics. And so we're covering the basics. And, and it seemed to me that the best way to do that, to put it in our language, in our terms, is to use Jesus' words uh, when he taught the parable of the prodigal son. So we're going to go back to that. Before we get there, uh, I, I think it's important that there's a couple of things that we start with. First of all, Jesus loves you. We don't hear that in our world in our world very often. Unfortunately, we don't even hear it in church often enough. Jesus loves you. God loves you. God created you out of love with a design and a purpose to become someone in his will that, that he specifically created you for. God loves you. I love you. The Holy Spirit of God is standing at the ready to come to your assistance to be your counselor, to be your advocate, to be your friend, just as soon as you accept Jesus as your Savior and begin to live your life for Him. We spent all this time talking about what's wrong in the world, and so my whole hope in this thing was to say, well, what's right? What's right is that God is still on His throne. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And the Holy Spirit is just standing at the ready to walk through life with you, to encourage you, and to help you grow in faith. I said last week we're going to do this series a little bit differently. I'm teaching out of this Bible. It's a New Living Translation. Typically, we uh, teach out of the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version. I just like it because it's more concerned about word-for-word translation. But the New Living is more uh, more concerned about being easy to read and understand. If you have a Bible at home and it's not one that you can understand easily, maybe you've got an old King James and it doesn't make sense to you, please get one of these. If you don't have a Bible at home, please get one of these. If you just want one because I'm talking about them and saying they're awesome Bibles, please get one of these. Then the other thing is, people say, well, where do we start reading? How do I begin reading the Bible? Start at the beginning of this one. Because in page one, before you even get to Genesis, it lays out all the foundation that we don't have time to cover in a sermon series of what it is to be a believer, what it is to be a Christian, what is it to live as a Christian. And so this is just an absolutely great Bible for all of those things. And it even gets to the point where it helps you understand and encourages you to begin to share your faith with others. So really the parable of the prodigal of uh, the prodigal son is this. Who is God in relationship to sinners? The father is our heavenly father. And the son in the story is all of us. We're the prodigal sons and we're the prodigal daughters. And it's important that we remember that Jesus taught this parable, not because it was something that had happened specifically in life and there was specific people, but because it's a truth and it's a truth for all times. And the part that we have to keep straight as we read it is God is the father in the story and we are the prodigal sons and daughters. So uh, we left off Luke 15. I'm going to just pick up the last part of what we covered last week. Uh, When he finally came to his senses, when the son finally came to his senses, at this point, he's living, he's working on the farm, he's feeding the pigs, and the pigs have better food than what he has, and he's starving because there's a famine in the land. He's wasted all of his money on wild living. He's got nothing left. He comes to his senses, and he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. 
I will go home to my father and I will say, now this is what he's thinking. This isn't what he's done yet. This is his plan. This is what he's, he's going to do, but it's not what he's done yet. He's going to go to his father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. That's his plan. At this point, he recognizes and he takes ownership of his behavior. He, he realizes that he's been selfish He realizes that he's been sinful and he's going to go back to his father and he's going to do it in a way that's humble and and he's not going to expect all of the rights and privileges of being a son to be bestowed immediately. He's just saying, please take me on as a hired servant. And he says that because he knows that the guys that work for his dad get taken care of well. He figures that if he needs to live and and work as as a poor farmhand, and by poor I mean one that doesn't even have food to feed himself, He might as well do it for his dad because at least his dad takes care of his employees. So he comes up with this plan. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. It's important that we take a look at what home is here because that word is used more than once. He returned home. He had left and run away from home. And when that didn't work out, he made the decision it was time to go back home. He returned home. He returned home to where his father was. Remember, as Jesus teaches the parable, the father is our heavenly father. You and I were the prodigal sons and daughters. And it's important in this parable that we understand that just like in life, no matter how far we stray from where we belong and from who we were created to be and how far we run away from God, we always know the way home. The way home is God. And when he uses that word home, that carries a lot of meaning for him. See, God doesn't hide from us when we sin. Just like in the Garden of Eden, we talked last week, when Adam and Eve did the one thing God told them not to do, don't eat the fruit from that tree, God said. What was the first thing they went and did? Well, the serpent came and talked to her and said, well, you know what? It's going to make you a little bit smarter, and it looks awful good. Why don't you? They decide to eat it. What's the next thing that they do? The very next thing that they do is they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which has to have been one of the most awesome sounds in all of creation, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They hid because... What they thought was going to be knowledge that was going to make them greater or stronger or smarter was the knowledge of their sin. Suddenly they understood their sinfulness. They hid from God. You and I, the prodigal sons and daughters, are the ones who hide from God because of our sin. God does not hide from us. It's so easy to say, well, I need God. I need to hear his voice. I don't know where he is. This is the time I really need him. Guess what? He's right there. It's us because of our stuff that separate ourselves from God. And so confessing our sin and repenting from our sin, turning back to God is what this guy is going to do. He's going to turn back and go back to his father. He's going to go back home. Repentance is to leave your sin behind and to make a conscious decision in the help of the Holy Spirit to go back the other direction. And so when we confess our sin and we repent from our sin and we turn back to God, it isn't a matter of direction because we know where to go. It's a matter of our intention. And so often, our intention only takes us further away from God. We know where home is, just like the prodigal son knew where home was. Home was where he belonged. Home was where his father was. The Bible says as we go on, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I have to imagine that this loving father who was so brokenhearted that his son had wanted a part of the father's money more than a relationship with the father. 
Rather than living every day and being a part of his father's life, the the son just wanted money and he wanted to take off and chase his own dreams and go find the good life, whatever he thought that was. I have to imagine there's a part of that father that spent every day out in the yard or in the field or at the end of the driveway looking down the road, hoping his son would come home. There had to have been a part of him that just hoped beyond hope that he would see this tiny little figure coming towards him. And when the day actually came, while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Dad had hoped beyond hope that this day would come, and he was ready for it. He didn't wait for the son to get to the house. He goes, okay, son, what what were you thinking? He ran to him. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Kissed him. No, I told you so. No talk of wasted or lost money. No chastising the son for his sinful stupidity. No rules. If you're coming back into my house, this is the way it's going to be. We've got to have some new rules. You ran away, and so I'm not sure you can handle it. None of that at all. Just love and compassion. And it shows itself with the father running toward the son wrapping him up in a hug and kissing him out of total joy. The father was so grateful that the son had come home. Remember, the father in the story is God. The prodigal sons and daughters are you and I. God is just waiting for us to come home. His son who was lost is home. And that's the reaction when you and I and everyone else in the world turns from our sin and says, God, I'm coming home. I want to come back to you. I want to come back and live for you. And the son says to his father, he'd been working on this. He had planned on it. I bet you he'd spent every step of every uh, day along the way. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. It's a critical moment. It's the turning point in the story. The, The prodigal son just didn't plan out what he was going to do. He actually had intention and he took action. He went back to his dad with intention and purpose and humility. He didn't go to complain that dad didn't give him enough money and he ran out before he wanted to. He didn't go back to to talk about how hard life was and the dad should feel bad for him. Rather, he went back to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. He didn't go to seeking special treatment. He went to humbly apologize. He chose to turn from his sinful life and travel home to live with his father, to go in a different direction. And that's what repentance is. Just like he traveled away from home with his inheritance and lived this crazy life and lost all of his money, now he turns from that and he returns home and he begins a journey of repentance. So forgiveness should always come with confession and repentance. Forgiveness doesn't really mean anything if you just say, well, God's going to forgive me, it doesn't matter. See, it should always come with confession and repentance. Confession is admitting your sin. Repenting is making the decision that you're no longer going to commit that sin. It's to turn from that sin and in the power of the Holy Spirit live a different life. See, here's the thing. We, we all know when we've messed up. When We know when we've made a mistake. We know when we've sinned. And, and I contend that that's true because even the non-believing world understands what sin is. Do you know how I know that? Because the non-believing world makes sin okay. The non-believing sin makes sin legal. The non-believing world makes sin a good thing. The non-believing world celebrates their sinfulness as a way of acknowledging. They know that it's sin, but they're not going to do anything about it. And so they embrace it. And so even non-believers understand what sin is. 
But do you understand what God has done for you in Jesus? Do you understand the posture of this father when the son comes home? Do you embrace God when he embraces you when you turn from your sin and come back to him? See, the son knew that he could return to his father just like God has told us that we can come back to him because of what Jesus has done for us. And, and what the son knew when he said it's time to go home is that a father's love is, is greater than his pride, greater than his selfishness, greater than the reckless sins of a crazy son. He knew the father's love was greater than that. And God, your heavenly father, loves you that much. And people who don't understand what it is to be a Christian don't grasp that. Because if you fully grasp how much you are loved by God, your Father who created you, there's no way that you would look anywhere else. God loves you as much, that's Jesus' point, as this Father in this parable. See, there's nothing that you can bring to God that God's going to reject you for. There's nothing you've done that's too far that God can't forgive you. There's, there's no sin that can't be covered by the blood and the death of Jesus. So when Jesus tells this parable back in the day 2,000 years ago, it is a parable for every one of us today. In fact, the Bible says in Luke 15, 7, in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. One lost sinner who recognizes their sinfulness, repents and comes home. There is more joy in heaven over that one than over the 99. When someone is far from God and they acknowledge that and recognize it and they confess that sin and they repent and they come home, there's literally a party in heaven. That's why Jesus says that the father in this story throws a party. That's why we make such a big deal when we celebrate baptisms. Baptism is when you make that public statement And maybe you were baptized as a kid. And if you were, you know what? God does his part perfectly. But if you say, I want to reaffirm your baptism, my faith is alive in a way that it's never been. What baptism is, is stepping out in obedience to Jesus' command and making a public statement saying, I'm going to die to myself, but I'm going to live for you, Jesus. Not just my Savior, but my Lord. That's what baptism is all about. That's why we celebrate baptisms around here so much. The joy-filled father. His father says to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. This kid that probably came home wearing next to nothing suddenly is dressed like royalty. And that's the image that this parable gives us in Jesus. The finest robe which certainly belonged to the father. Sandals and a ring, which is something that a wealthy person of royalty would wear. This father is saying, I want my son to feel like a prince in my home. This is my son. This is my boy. Kill the calf we've been fattening. Kill that calf that we've been waiting for the greatest celebration that we could imagine. Let's celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. There's more joy in heaven. And Jesus wants to make sure that we understand in this parable That this father is God, and that's how he celebrates us. He pulls out all the stops, spares no expense. Even though the son took a third of what the father had, he puts him on his best clothes, a ring, and sandals on his feet. He throws a party with the best calf. Why? Because the lost son has come home. See, sadly, though, it's in our world, we don't always behave like the father in the story. We can probably relate to the prodigal son or daughter, but it's the people around us 
often who refuse to see and acknowledge and forgive, even when we confess and repent and are forgiven by God. I bet you've experienced this. You've done something wrong to someone. You feel terrible about it. Maybe you've sinned against them and you apologize. You ask for forgiveness and they don't. They want to hold you accountable. We, we talk about forgiveness We celebrate being forgiven. We expect others to forgive us. But so often we're the ones that withhold the very forgiveness that we expect from them. We deny forgiveness so that we can make ourselves feel better or more powerful, maybe vindicated by withholding forgiveness. Often we deny the integrity of the repentant heart and we hold people accountable and captive to the sins of their past so that they end up drowning in them rather than bringing them words of life and grace and forgiveness the way that God does for us, the way the Father does in this story. And so the lost son has come home. He throws a party. The son is hoping for nothing more than a job and some food. Imagine the surprise that son felt when he saw his father's reaction. I heard once a speaker, Dater and I went to a conference years ago, and the speaker said, The Christians today get all excited about the scraps that fall off of God's table. And we grab them up off the floor and we think that that's what the whole thing is about. But in fact, God has created a banquet and set that table for us. And yet so often we we just settle for the scraps. Like that's enough, a little bit of blessing, a little bit of good, a, a, a little bit of something that goes our way when God has so much more for us. The son expected scraps and he got a banquet. God is God of lavish love on his children. God is God of abundance and not scarcity. And yet the image the churches have put before people, in the American church at least, because I can't speak for the rest of the world, it's almost that we encourage people to give the appearance of being church-like because we know what it looks like to be someone who goes to church, right? Give the appearance of being church-like rather than focus on living our lives to become more Christ-like, which is the whole notion of being a disciple, to grow in our likeness of Christ. So what we've done in the last 20 years is that we've started to believe and we've passed on to others the idea that it's okay to start rewriting the Bible and changing its meaning, changing God's message to us in order to fit our modern lives by changing Scripture rather than acknowledging that Scripture is written to change us. And we just slide deeper into our sin. We settle for scraps that we think make us feel better in the moment when God has so much more waiting for us. Ephesians 3 says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how deep and how high his love is. Unimaginable is the point. See, the prodigal son, and so often you and I, we buy Satan's lie that somehow things are better somewhere else. The son believed that life would be better if he just had freedom and he had some of the money that was coming to him eventually. And if he left home and ran off to some faraway country where he had freedom and independence, the life would be good. And the phrase that we use is the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. That fence might be the other side of town or another state or another job or another whatever. That phrase came up last week when we were with Kirsten and Michael and Willow and Zuri. And I heard Kirsten respond to it in a way I've never heard before and I love it. 
Phrase is, the grass is always greener. On the other side of the fence, Kirsten responded, the grass is greener where you water it. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass is already green. See, the prodigal son, he found out that sometimes the grass dries up and disappears completely when we insist on walking our own path in life. Paul wrote about this. Paul wrote and shared his heart to the church in Colossae in Colossians 2. Paul wants us to understand how to navigate the forces of evil and the currents of darkness that are in our world. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, Colossians 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first ten verses. Paul says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. There is no mystery in God anymore. The mystery of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What caused Adam and Eve to sin? They fell to the serpent's temptation saying, you know what? You're going to be smarter. You're going to know more. You're going to be like God himself. I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from him and my heart is with you, he's concerned because the world is really good about spinning the story in their favor and away from God. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth that you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. What is wrong in our world is that we fall for just that. High-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies that come from human thinking and spiritual powers that are not from Jesus. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You want to know what's right in our world? God is on his throne and Jesus is in charge. Jesus, who is authority over every ruler, he was the head over every ruler and authority. That's what's right, folks. In God's creation, the grass is greener where we are living in unison with God, in his word and in a relationship with Jesus to whom we have given our lives. That's where the greenest grass is always going to be. The prodigal son learned the hard way that money does not make you happy and life is hard. I I hear from people all the time, and I agree with you. Following Jesus can be hard. Yes, it can. You know why? Because we're going to sin. And when sin, we feel guilty, we feel bad, we feel like we failed. But that is the reason that God has given us Jesus in the first place. Following Jesus can be hard. Ask a young people. Ask our young people trying to follow Jesus at school. Living for ourselves, trying to make it on our own in this world, that's hard, folks. Following Jesus in school or at an office or with friends who don't believe, that's hard. Following your own way in the world, that's harder. Being given wealth and and living without thinking or planning may be fun for a while, but when the money runs out and the fun is gone, that's hard. Squandering a fortune 
or ruining your life is hard. Coming back to God in confession and repentance after we've sinned can be hard because it requires humility. But that's where the prodigal son started. I'm going to ask only to be a servant. And I'm going to apologize because I have sinned before God and in heaven. See, but we know God's waiting to forgive us. We know that because that's the whole point of Jesus' parable. To celebrate us, to restore us. One of the inescapable parts of this life, folks, is that it's hard. Life is hard. But thanks to Jesus, we get to choose our hard. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has done all of the hardest work for us. Jesus has done the tough stuff. And now, like the prodigal son's father, he is just waiting for you and I to give up the struggle of living for ourselves and to choose him. He says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Jesus is easy to love. Living as a Christian isn't always easy in our world, but Jesus is easy to love. In Ephesians 1, 7 to 9, it says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Talking about our heavenly father now. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding the thing that the serpent promised Adam and Eve God already has for us. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is, fulfill, which is to fulfill his own good plan. God's own good plan for your life is for you to live in a relationship with Jesus. How is it that you can be certain that you're going to heaven? How can your salvation be secure? By saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you're the Son of God, and I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. Jesus, I can't do it on my own anymore. And so I'm not going to ask you to put an endorsement stamp on my life. I'm going to change my life, and I'm going to start to live for you. I'm going to live my life for you. That's why we talk about submitting our lives to Jesus. See, what's the mystery of God's great plan for you? What's the purpose and the meaning of your life? Our relationship with Jesus. So what do you do? Who will you choose? You basically have your plan for your life, and I'll ask you how that's going. Or God's plan for your life, the life that he created you to live. If you decide you choose Jesus, maybe you say, I want to take that next step, and and I want to be obedient in baptism. I want to let everybody know that I want to follow him, that I want to live my life for him, not for me anymore. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate, and I mean celebrate, baptisms. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. Mom and dad loved you. They brought you to church, and you were baptized before you had any idea what was going on. Didn't even get to choose the color of your own baptism outfit. God's job is done perfectly every time God does it. So you don't need to be re-baptized, but maybe you want to affirm your baptism from when you were a child. You want to make the statement yourself that this is my faith, and I claim it. This is my future and my eternity with Jesus, and I claim it. Whatever it is, the, the, the choice is ours. We can keep living looking for greener grass somewhere else, or we can water the grass where God has put us. We can water the grass where God has planted us in this life. And the only way that that's ever going to make sense is to recognize that we're all prodigal sons and daughters, and without God, we're going to be in the same mess that he was. Let's pray. God, Thank you for this parable of Jesus. Thank you for the way that he makes it so clear in, in such simple language. There's a father and there's a son. 
And the father loves the son, and the son wants freedom and money from the dad, and so he runs away to live life on his own. And when all of that runs out, he realizes that home is where his father is. God, our home is where you are. Our home is with Jesus. Help us to learn that. Help us to see that, to understand it, to accept it, God. And then help us to live that way. Following Jesus sometimes isn't easy at all because people make fun of us. They give us a hard time. They make life difficult. People try to trip us up. But God, loving Jesus is not hard. Loving Jesus is easy. And being loved by Jesus, being loved by you, is the greatest gift in the world. Help us understand the banquet that you have prepared for us. And that when we choose to live our own way through life, we're just living on scraps. But that's not what you created this for. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's only through him that we can come to faith, grow in faith, and have any hope at all to live the life of a disciple of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I read something one time that when a, a pastor preaches a story from the Bible, when Jesus talks about it, 90% of the pastors put themselves in the position of Jesus teaching the story, assuming the congregation puts themselves in the place of the object of the story. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you can identify with the prodigal son or daughter? Really? Okay, there's some of you again. Okay, I understand the prodigal son or daughter. I want to love like the father does. But I understand that's God's place. And I understand that, that what we do with our sin is that we turn and we go off on our own way and thank the good Lord in heaven that we have Jesus to welcome us home.